0: You're listening to the Getting Smart podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. Welcome to the Getting Smart podcast. I'm your host Jessica, and today we're listening in on an interview Tom got to do with Sam Seidel, the director of K twelve strategy and research at the Stanford D School. Before joining the D School last year, Seidel directed a student experience lab at the Business Innovation Factory in Providence. Let's listen in to hear how Sam and his team at the Stanford D School are teaching design thinking in order to hack school and prep youth for complexity.
1: Sam Sodell, welcome to the Getting Smart podcast.
2: Thank you, Tom Vanderart. Uh, Where'd you go to high school? I went to Cambridge Ringe and Latin.
1: Did you really? I really did. That's where the uh, Boston Bombers went to school. But more importantly, Larry Rosenstock. Uh, did some of his early administrative training there.
2: That is a good piece of progressive education trivia. And Larry was a principal. Uh, he, uh, towards the end, right at the end of my time there, he was head of the School of Technical Arts for my whole time there. Really? Yeah. And I, I already knew Larry a bit wow. um, through family connections. My mom also worked at the high school and worked closely there with him.
1: You're like um, the only other person that
2: I know that knew that Larry was at Cambridge Fringe, and Latin. Well, not only did I know, but technically, Tom, I was his boss because I, no. <laughs> I was a I was a student representative, elected student representative on the Cambridge School Committee. So um, Larry would come and and at points ha- have to sort of speak to us, and I was in, wow. I got to be involved in in some of the work he was doing to reimagine the high school, which I think was really, um, right. I think he would say was early stages of high tech high and formation. And, it,
1: it absolutely was it's it's where I learned about Larry Rosenstock and why uh when when and I helped Bill and Melinda start the Gates Foundation in ninety nine um, high tech i well the construction trailer that became high tech I was the really the first place that I went so Cambridge Ringe and is really one of America's oldest and most famous schools. Would you
2: say it as a a positive experience uh I would qualify it, but I would say yes I mean. You know, it's touted as being one of the most diverse schools in the country. Um and I believe that's probably true. I know they say there's over eighty countries represented and many, many languages spoken. i i I think, and there's been a lot that there was a lot that came out at the time I was there about some of the inequities uh, along race and class lines. Right. Um, and unfortunately, from things I hear, a lot of that has persisted there. Um, and I think there's this sort of myth that Cambridge is this diverse utopia. Um, and I worry that in a lot of ways it creates a great experience for the wealthier and whiter students and not as great an experience for, uh, black students, Latinx students, um, and students who come from less financial means.
1: And do you think you had a sense of that in high school and, and was it being a student rep on the committee that maybe surfaced that, those equity questions for you?
2: Well, uh, not only did I go to Cambridge Ridge and Latin, but I went to um, uh, Cambridge public schools for K through eight. I went to a school called Graham and Parks Alternative Public School, and it was named after Rosa Parks as well as a local activist and politician, Sandra Graham, um, both of whom were civil rights activists. Um, I'm assuming you and your listeners are familiar with Rosa Parks. Sandra Graham was a Cambridge, uh, you know, born and raised in Cambridge, and dedicated her life to fighting for rights of people of color, women, people without economic means, particularly as it pertained to housing. Um, so I say all that to say that my K-8 through experience was very much oriented around social issues and justice. And so I was pretty tuned in uh, between that and between the household I grew up in, pretty tuned into um, those sorts of dynamics, questions of justice, equity, paying attention to race and gender. Um, so yes, I think I was somewhat aware. And I only realized more recently that I I stopped st- like pursuing science and math pretty early in high school, and I I realized more recently that those were also classes where some really uncool things happened um, along like the, on behalf of the teachers along racial lines, um, where I saw, saw certain students being treated badly or, or indifferently. Um, and I, I really wonder, and I, I, I don't want to blame, I mean, I don't know why I didn't pursue, (laughs) I ended up, you know, pursuing becoming an English teacher and a writer. And I don't, I wonder if some of those experiences in those classes drove me away from entire disciplines because I sensed that something I really didn't like there. It's just been an area of inquiry for me lately. I don't, I don't know the answer, but I've started to wonder about that.
1: So this is going to be a related question. Uh, we're talking about uh, design and design thinking today. W- would you say that you
2: uh, had
1: some specific experiences in high school or college that that were that resembled design thinking?
2: Yes. Um, I don't think we ever used that term. Right. Absolutely. I mean, um I, when I was in high school, towards the end, I think it was my senior year, maybe junior year, I think it was senior year, uh, there was a teacher actually that worked with um, Larry in the technical arts program, and his name was John Shea, and he started something called the Cambridge Service Corps, and you could you could get three classes worth of credit for being in it. I think it was social studies, English, and an elective or something like that, um, but it was all about identifying challenges in the community and working together to solve them. And at the time, and I guess still I would call it a popular education model or maybe a critical pedagogy model, but it has a lot in common with the way that I'm seeing design thinking used in schools now. Um, we did empathy work. You know, we, we thought we identified a problem, then we did empathy work to deeper develop deeper understandings of the challenge we were looking at, synthesis together, uh, some ideation, probably not as much as is often brought out and through a design thinking process and then testing of ideas. Um, and in retrospect, we probably would have been well-served by a bit more scrappy prototyping before we tried launching our, some of our big ideas. Um, I have a memory of a sparsely populated school cafeteria for a community event that we had anticipated being massive, but, um, you know, a lot, it, it definitely followed a lot of what we would see as a design process and, and, and push and help develop some of the same mindsets that we work, uh, with students and teachers to develop now under the under yeah, the, great. the banner of design thinking.
1: Last week we interviewed John Couch, uh, former VP of Education at Apple, and he would call that challenge based learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it lives on with that name on uh, Karen Cater's site at uh, Digital Promise. But uh, we love the idea of identifying community challenges and and designing solutions. So. That, I think, Sam, I think you and I met when you were running the student experience lab for the business innovation factory. That was probably a next generation learning challenge project. Um, Tell us about uh,
2: BIF and the work you did there. Sure. Yeah. BIF for me was the um, first foray that I had into like the sort of capital D, capital T design thinking world. And, and a lot of my career as an educator and working with both students and educators followed some of those same sensibilities that I was just talking about. I mean, empathy, synthesis, ideation, testing, and that sort of cycle, and really engaging um, students as as designers in that work. But I wasn't necessarily using the D word to talk about it. Uh, I, I heard about these folks who were doing it, who were in Providence, which is where I lived, and they wanted—they were working on an entirely student-designed high school. And that was just so up my alley. I had just been working for Big Picture Learning for about five years on something called uh, the Association for High School Innovation. And one of my roles there had been to engage high school students who had been kicked out or dro- pushed out or dropped out of high schools. Um, this is particularly Black and Latinx students from around the country uh, in being part of a network with a dozen organizations that had all received funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to replicate their we, alternative school models. So that yeah, included
1: we, big picture. Initially, we initially put that together with JFF. Um, it was called the Alternative High School Initiative. And, yes. And then you helped morph it into uh, uh, an effort to make it a sustainable
2: initiative focused on high school innovation. Exactly. I right. I I, know, I I had a feeling you had a part of the history there, but I was right. going to let but you I, tell your story. I didn't story know on you that. were involved in that. That's cool. Yeah, I came in pretty early. It had already started, and and I had worked with Elliot a bit prior to that on some of the big picture learning early back when it was the Big Picture Company, uh, and I was actually a college student when I started working with him. But um, with AHSI, which as you just pointed out, went from being called the Alternative High School Initiative to the Association for High School Innovation, because Well, anyway, probably not worth going down the name change road, but yeah, yeah, I think people agreed and kept, kept the letters the same. Um, But one of the pieces that we decided was really important was to bring students into the conversation. So all these organizations had gotten these multimillion dollar grants to replicate. Um, They had really interesting models. This is like youth Build, gateway to college, Ed Visions, big picture learning, black alliance for educational options, um, the association for the advancement of Mexican Americans. I mean, just a really amazing group of both just individual people and, and educators and school designers. And one of the roles I got to play was bringing students into that conversation. So I had spent a lot of time over those years talking with high school students for whom traditional school had not worked about what they wanted and needed out of school. So when I heard that this organization, BIF, was in Providence, and wanted was planning to work with the Rhode Island Department of Education to design a school with high school students. I just reached out to them and said, "I, I let's talk." I mean, I I want to be a part of this in some way. Um, I did not know when I reached out that I would become the director of their Student Experience Lab, which was a small human centered design lab that worked with uh, and still does work with uh, education leaders all over the country. And as you pointed out, that brought me into contact with Andy Calkins and uh NGLC and, and I think that that brought you and I together. Um but when at BIF we you know we had the opportunity to do some really cool projects. One of them was called Students Design for Education, which I've just been talking about. And it did result in a school which is uh part of Providence Public Schools. It's called 360 High School. Um, and so that was a really amazing experience. And I can I'll share with you some links of some of the materials and videos and things that came out of that process. Um, we got to do the work with NGLC. We did some really interesting work around deeper learning and storytelling and partnered with Edutopia on a series of videos about how teachers and school leaders could hack their way toward deeper learning, um, which is really a sibling project to um, School Hackers, which, or sorry, that was called School Hackers. It's a sibling project to School Retool, which I now get to work on here at the K-12 lab at the d.school.
1: Speaking of which, you've been there about a year at, at the at the sort of global epicenter of design thinking. Uh, what does the K-12 lab at the Stanford D School do?
2: Have you ever asked a room full of five-year-olds to raise your hand if you're an artist? Yes, everybody raises their hand. And then when you do it with adults? One person in the back of the room does. <laughs> We're trying to change that. Yeah. <laughs> We're trying to build the creative confidence back up for the the grown folks in the education system. Um, And so we do that through a lot of different means. Um, A lot of it is through offerings that we we put out into the world for educators. Some of those are digital. There's a ton of free stuff on our site at this point, Um, from a deck of cards about liberatory design um, to... uh, Four-page document, just chock full of resources about design thinking and education. To slide decks, and I mean, it really—it's it's pretty vast on there. Um, we also do a lot of in-person engagements with educators. Four times a year, we host an um, event here called Discover Design Thinking, where we bring in fifty or sixty educators from around the country and around the world um, for a kind of crash course introduction to what how design thinking can be useful. In the K-12 education field. Um, and then we also are out doing those same kinds of trainings all over the country and the world, um, collaborating with folks in, in various regions around, around the U.S. and the globe.
1: Would you say that Crash Course, does, is the focus on helping educators use the design thinking uh, to innovate in school, or is it designed to teach uh, design thinking to students, or is it both?
2: It's both. Yeah. And actually last weekend, we just prototyped, we're trying to practice what we preach here. So we get feedback from people who attend. And one of the pieces of feedback has been, I need more help taking it back to my school. And for some people, that means I want to do it with a class or all my classes of high school students. Um, And for other people, that means I want to employ some of this amongst our faculty. Um, And some people really want to do both. And we're never in a position of trying to tell people what they should do or force them to do one or the other. So what we did was added a third day to the training. It's been in the past; it's been a two-day event, uh, and folks stuck around on a Saturday and um, spent most of the day working with each other on how they were going to bring this stuff back. And we've created some tools to help them do that. And then we brought in, I think, thirty-six K through twelve students to test the ideas. So we surprised the attendees, the educators, and said told them at some point in the morning, hey, in, in a couple of hours, you're going to have students here to try some of this with. Um, and it really brought an urgency and an energy to the day. Um, and it was, it was pretty amazing. I mean, we're still waiting to get some survey results back and get to talk with more of the attendees. But um, the on-the-spot feedback, I mean, several people just said to me or asked me, you've never done this third day before? Like, how did you do this training? <laughs> <laughs> Without this third day, so it sounds like it, it, it had value, and and no one complained about the the additional day here. Um, so we're we're still like we encourage everyone else to do. We're still iterating on things that we've done for quite a while, and learning, and and trying to make them better. And and part of that has been about helping through more of the process of bringing things well, back to uh, folks work at home. Uh,
1: Sam, when when some people. Um, Talk about design thinking—they're really referring to a mindset. In other cases, people are referring to a really structured methodology. What's the what's the take of the D school? Like, what what's the definition there on campus of design thinking? Is it a
2: mindset or a methodology or both? I'll put it this way: We've been doing more and more work around design abilities. And one of those abilities is navigating ambiguity, and I think this is a, an area that you've just raised where there is ambiguity. I don't think it's a yes/no or a binary. And you, I, I certainly won't act as a spokesperson of the entire D school to say it's this or it's right. that. Um, I think that it would be accurate to say that in many of the the kind of earlier years of the D school. There was a lot of emphasis placed and maybe not by people here, maybe more by the external world. Um, I don't know. I wasn't here at that time. A lot of emphasis placed on process that there's these stages that you must go through. And I think that, that there's been a lot of intentionality over the last several years, and maybe there always has been here around opening that up a little and saying, yes, there's a, there is a process that can be remixed and reworked, but there's value in that. And there are specific tools that may attach to some phases of that process. And it's really about mindsets. It's really about developing these abilities. And if the process is useful to do that, then, and it has been for many, um, that's part of why it's had such staying power and it's all over the place. That's great. But to get so attached to the process that you're not achieving any of the goals that you set out to achieve, you're not building creative confidence or courage for educators or students, but you're saying, but, but we have to do the next phase, then it's, you're probably yep. being a little yep. too tightly latched to that process. You know, so, I, I, I saw a similar approach at Olin College
1: uh, in Needham, Massachusetts. So equal yeah. commitment to design thinking, but uh, also this similar flexibility in an effort to avoid becoming uh, sort of rigid or stale.
2: Well, there's an irony, a process that's meant to elicit creativity that we become too beholden to. There's, There's an irony there because we're not being creative in our own process. So, We should always be questioning and remixing and thinking of new approaches to it. And in fact, I mentioned our liberatory design cards. The K 12 lab uh, had a partnership and is still connected to the National Equity Project and worked on sort of remixing design thinking uh, to say, how do we build in equity more explicitly to the very process, the hexagons that have become famous from the D school that people follow, and adding a few new hexagons, a few new steps to the process that felt important um, in order to center equity hey, in the work. Let's so Let's talk
1: about equity. I, you guys have proposed an equity centered design framework. What's the link between equity and design thinking?
2: Well, <laughs> so there's a lot of angles to come at that question from. I think for me, thinking about it in the, in the context of K-12 education, there's this question about what we're trying to do here. Are we trying to improve a system that is in many ways set up to track students and put some on track for uh, future success, both professionally and financially and societally and personally and spiritually and all of that, and we're okay with a lot of students never having access to that? Um, Or are we really interested in a a, a radically different system that says, no, no? There aren't these two or a few tracks that put people into different possible futures. This is about creating an entire generation of problem solvers who are going to question the very structures of society that create systems like that. And if that's our project, we need to make sure that we're building into, whether it's process or mindsets or abilities, the, the, the right raw ingredients to prepare ourselves as system Redesigners, recombobulators, in some cases, system take aparters and restarters, um, as well as really preparing our students for that kind of work. Um, That's that's sort of my take on it. Is is that's that's the real work that needs to happen? Yeah,
1: that's a a beautiful answer. But it it I mean it is we can say design thinking can be used to improve the system we have or to design a radically different system. But I, I I appreciate. Uh, the juxtaposition. I, I want to talk about a couple of the cool projects the D school has launched um, in K twelve in the last few years. One of them is School Retool. It was aimed at deeper learning, sponsored by by Hewlett. But what what was that about?
2: Yeah. Well, we should acknowledge too that there was many other partners or you know backers and collaborators in that work. Um, so, but Hewlett was the first. You're Hewlett absolutely and right. And was
1: there. a key partner.
2: I, yeah, I, so IDEO was key in the design um, and has been have been partners and advisors throughout. Um, Hewlett was the first and has been a really consistent, um, not only funder but really thought right. partner on on yeah. that whole project. And um, Einhorn Charitable Trust has been a, a big supporter of that work as well as many regional partners, both in, from a funding capacity as well as uh, on the ground action capacity. I mean, School Retool. Started with some just pilot sites as we, you know, we often preach prototype and test small quickly and learn. Uh, the same with that was how school retool was started, and now it's in about 20 uh regions a year with about 20 school leaders in each of those regions. Um, and in each of those regions, there's local partners who have really not only made the work possible but customized it. It's not just delivering something that was invented in a Backroom laboratory at IDEO or at the D School—it's—it's—it's it's, it's work that folks have innovated on what, the ground. And so, what do they get? Um,
1: school leaders get a, a toolkit uh, for reinventing school.
2: Yeah, uh, it, it not, it's not just a toolkit; it's a fellowship. So, school leaders sign up to be a part of a school retool cohort, and over the course of about four months, they come together at least four times in person with with uh active coaches that come um either some of them are full-time members of our team here at the D school others have been here for training and work with us and some are based in the regions where the cohorts are are occurring um and over the course of those four uh sessions with with the school retool coaches they they go through a fellowship program um where they do a kind of snapshot of their school and where deeper learning is and isn't happening in their current environment Um, I believe strongly deeper learning is happening to some extent everywhere. There's six competencies and each one is like its own light switch dimmer that might be higher or lower at a given time, um, in any environment. So part of it is just understanding what is and isn't happening and not assuming a deficit mindset. Um, and similar with equity, like who is it happening for? Is it students of a certain race, a, a certain class background, a certain neighborhood, a certain academic quote unquote ability? Um, so taking, taking stock of that and shadowing a student, spending a full day shadowing a student that's furthest from opportunity within the school context. Um, so starting there, identifying an aspiration, a deeper learning aspiration. Here's something we'd like to do differently. We'd like to see change in our school. We'd like for there to be more collaboration. We'd like for there to be more, um, whatever it is that is authentic to that school leader after doing that kind of work of learning from their community. And then what we help them do—it's not a full design thinking training. It's really about how do you then start small and come up with ways that you can try that thing. Because what happens to us a lot of times, any of us, I think, is we get overwhelmed. We say, "Well, I want to—I have forty-two minute periods. I want to do project-based learning. None of most of my teachers haven't heard what that is. I don't have all the money to get them all trained. I, I guess I can't do it, or it's just right. hard to start." So this is a lot of what. School Retool is about, is about helping people find some clever, small ways to get started, to build up some um, DIY, do-it-yourself uh, tools, and 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 really just that mentality that says, how could I take this and yep. get going? And one of the great things over time with School Retool is that we've been able to document what a lot of other school leaders who have been fellows in the past have done. Um, so when we started, we, we had to show models from some exemplar schools many of whom are schools that I know you're very familiar with that say well here's how a big picture learning or an expeditionary learning or a high tech high does advisory how might you hack toward it now we're at a place where we increasingly have examples from um, seemingly more traditional public schools all over the country that have participated in the fellowship and tried some really cool things and got moving and can, can tell new school leaders coming into the work well here's now we're doing intercession, but here's how we started. Here's the first thing we did in the fellowship that has led to the entire school taking a week to pursue passion-based projects. Um, so we're, we're building up kind of a library of, of examples of school leaders making really meaningful changes in their schools, in the culture of their schools, starting really yeah, small. Yeah,
1: I got a, got a plug for uh, Matt Kendler and uh, 4.0 schools. I'm a, a director there. And I think Matt and and his team have really taught me the beauty of starting small. You know, if you have a, a good idea, try it in after school, then do it in summer school, then launch a, a micro school. Uh, you can start small and use iterative development to, uh, to innovate. In fact, uh, Hassan Hassan and I from uh, 4.0 just published a, a little guidebook for how school districts can uh, use micro schools and these micro innovations to, to iterate. So love that idea and love this shadow of a student. That's yeah, super, like uh, that. shadow of a student is just a, such a, such a powerful, simple, uh, thing that everybody and anybody can do. Right.
2: Yeah, I, for folks who aren't familiar, the Shadow a Student Challenge is the challenge to take one day, just one day of your year, and spend it following a student from the start of their day to the end. Um, if you, if it's appropriate and possible, even you know riding yeah, the school great. bus with them and seeing that experience, really understanding what's going on for students in your system. So if you're a district administrator or a school administrator, but also if you're a community member, a business person. Um, it is a powerful learning experience and some of it, and I'm speaking from experience, having done it, it, some of it's powerful because it brings one back to our own experience of being a student. I mean, I had memories in in, shadowing a student, a sixth grader this year that I hadn't had maybe since sixth grade of of my experience. How how painful
1: it can be to sit through a school day. It's, it's of why I, we visit a lot of schools and it's fun to see more and more schools update their furniture and add, standing desks and couches and, you know, just allow kids a little bit of flexibility that we have in the workplace because it sucks to sit all day.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely. That's a great point. And I did, I did feel some of that, even though I had a, it was a pretty engaging day overall, but the other thing that was on my mind actually was, was less about that. It was more about the social dynamic. I mean, it's funny you and I both visit a lot of schools And when you visit a school when you're not shadowing a student, often you're treated sort of like a VIP. I mean, you're being taken around probably by the principal. You're being whisked in and out of classrooms. Um, There's this air, some sort of air of importance, like you're there for some official. When I was shadowing the student that I was shadowing this year, I went to lunch with her. And I wasn't with the principal and a group of people in suits or ties or whatnot, I was in a school cafeteria with a bunch of middle school students and I wasn't no. sure where to sit. <laughs> and even though I'm not no. a sixth grader, I it I had that social awkwardness of like, are these kids going to like me if I sit down at their table? Are they going to think I'm weird? I mean, I, it was just, it was weird how it came back to me and and not that I was a particularly like socially awkward. I had, you know, a good, pretty good experience overall in middle school, but it just brought back those feelings that would, would surge up as, as a kid in a way that I hadn't felt in in a long time. Um, And then the other thing that I just, since we're talking about that day that I have to bring up is we did a active shooter drill. It was in the middle of a math class. We were doing a statistics worksheet, basically a really engaging teacher. And he said, I, I need to do this. We did a bit, they did a big one with like the police and fire department the day before or something, but this class hadn't been in session and he wanted these kids to understand how he was going to do things. And he had built something from home to barricade the door wow. that he wanted them to see. Um, and we all huddled in a corner, me and, you know, 25 or so sixth graders, while this math teacher showed us how he was going to slide his desk and barricade the door with this wooden thing he had put together. Um, and he was smart. I mean, what he had put together made sense given the way the door opened there, there, The desk wasn't going to yeah. do anything because the door swung out. So he had, he had done something to kind of lock the handle in, but it was terrifying to me. And then we got up and we were supposed to go back to the statistics work and I, I was so distracted and it just, it, 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 drove home a point for me, which is, you know, I think a lot I, about the impact on a school, on a, on students of a actual shooting occurring, I hadn't quite realized that children in every school across the country are doing these drills and how much that's impacting their heart and soul and being and their learning. Um, I know I was not paying attention to statistics after that. And then we went to another class and I honestly, I can't even tell you what it was (laughs) because I was so distracted by that. And I tried to ask the student, I was shadowing about it a bit and I, I could, it was, it was, it was a hard conversation, but it, it has really raised my awareness around how harmful that the possibility of gun violence in schools is to all students. No, thanks for
1: sharing that. Um, We hear that, we hear that same thing nationwide. I I was just uh, spent two days in 10 schools in El Paso, and uh, we we talked about this. So it's uh, experienced everywhere. Hey, tell me about this puzzle bus. What is that about?
2: <laughs> yeah from 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 school shootings to the puzzle bus. Um, what the what the heck is a deeper learning puzzle bus? The deeper learning puzzle bus is a part of our effort to shake up the conversation around how we measure the things that matter most for young people in our schools. And, um, we have obviously a whole industrial complex built up around testing and standardized testing. Um, the idea behind the puzzle bus is to provoke people's thinking and, and what's inside the bus is what matters, which is an escape room. And for anyone not familiar, that is an experience, a timed experience where a group has to solve a series of puzzles to, to sort of, break out of a space. You're not really locked in. It's, it's, it's just, right. <laughs> you're metaphorically locked in. Um, and so, but it's, it feels quite real when you're in the middle of it. <laughs> it, it is amazing how real it feels. I mean, I remember doing one and it, it ended, we escaped with one minute left and I fell on the floor, you know, on my back and like, <laughs> you know, we were trying to defuse a bomb on a moving train and I really had like right. gotten into the story to the point where it sort of felt like it was all was going to be over if I, we, if we didn't get it defused. Um, we, we wanted to, to bring some of that, not so much the bomb on the train scenario, but some of that puzzle, fun learning to schools. And we thought one of the things that's, that's really hard to, there's a, when you think about deeper learning and how, how do we know if students are developing the ability to communicate effectively, how do we know if they're learning to collaborate? How do we define what that looks like? Um, what collaborative problem solving or, or critical thinking look like, Um, And how how would you put that on a bubble test, Um, especially collaboration? I mean, that one just seems so hard to measure in a standardized written form. Um, And so part of the goal is we we think that this could be a really great formative assessment that folks can build in their own school. And actually, a lot of educators have been reaching out to us who are already building um, escape rooms with their students for a variety of reasons. We've partnered with some researchers at Stanford to develop Uh, measurement systems related to collaboration and collaborative problem solving in this context, which gives a facilitator that could be a classroom teacher, it could be a student, or it could be someone else from from the community, uh, the ability to track how a group is doing um, in collaborative problem solving. And the idea is that you could do this, and we're developing puzzles that we're, share, we're sharing out on our website for free, that people can build for virtually nothing. I mean, in some cases you might have to purchase a lock if you don't have one, um, but it's mostly stuff you can build out of paper and uh, you know supplies that you would have around a school or or could obtain for free if not very cheaply. And so we're we're developing puzzles that we're sharing, and then we're also trying to help develop a, a toolkit to help people develop their own puzzles because we want people to be able to not just do it, want, do it once, but um, over time have students build a room and use it to, to measure and, and see how they're progressing in areas of collaborative problem solving. Um, so that's been, that's been the work. We took it in the back of a 1996 Frito-Lay delivery truck that the School had to South by Southwest EDU and brought several hundred educators and some students as well through it. Uh, we took it to the Deeper Learning Conference in San Diego. And my colleague, Louis Montoya, has been taking it around to some other schools just around the Bay Area as well to continue to test and iterate on our designs as we build out this toolkit for educators. That's awesome. I got to
1: catch it somewhere. Yeah, I, I think. So, don't,
2: don't quote me on this, but I, I think there's a good chance that it might be at EdLeader21.
1: Awesome. So we've we've talked about using design thinking to uh, by educators to to innovate learning. If we went to a school that fully incorporated design thinking, give us a couple examples of what that
2: might look like if we followed a student around. Wow. Yeah, I think that could manifest in a lot of different ways. I mean, one example that comes to mind, because we talked about it earlier, was the Cambridge Service Corps experience that I had as a high school student. Um, and I think a lot of what you would have seen if you had come in and seen that work would have been very similar to, to what you might imagine seeing in a school that right. fully embodies design thinking.
1: So, extended challenge, community connected. You know, getting to know the, the 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 people being impacted, right? Doing some empathy research, iterative development.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that human centered piece of understanding people that you're designing for, whether that's your classmates and peers or, or, uh, whoever it is, but really naming and understanding that, um, noticing the systems that affect the folks that you're designing for and that you're operating within. Um, I I think one of the biggest things in, in schools where I, I think design thinking as a process, as mindsets, as abilities really can have an impact is I think And this is probably true in all of society, but certainly true in schools where I've spent most of my life. This thing we have called solutionitis, where we just jump to a solution. It's service learning. Uh, It's a new learning management system. Um, It's something else cool we saw on the Getting Smart blog last week. Um, I think design thinking slows us down. What problem are we actually trying to solve? Why? What's beneath that problem? What are the root causes? And there's, when it's being done well, a lot of the value is in the reframing of the challenge. Maybe we thought uh, that we had a problem around, we knew we had a problem around attendance, but we thought it was around, we needed a new technical system to mark that students are present, but maybe they, that's not the issue. Um, Maybe it's about the actual policy that sits behind that system, or maybe it's actually about how engaging or not engaging things are. Are going, right. Right.
1: Maybe it's to school exactly. Place, right? we know, so,
2: but <laughs> that's sort of an obvious example. But the the process of going through the collection of of information and then synthesizing it and coming to insights and going back and having the chance to reframe your challenge saves you potentially yeah. from spending a bunch of money and time implementing a new software system because you think that's going to fix something that's actually. Um, So I think that's one of the places where like if you go into a school like that, that would be some of the value that you'd see if this is being done, not just as like a process in a maker elective, but as a part of the school's DNA. Uh,
1: So that's a great example. Um, You're an English teacher. So how, how do you think about design thinking and writing?
2: Wow. That is a great question that I can. We
1: should write a blog about this You've, You, ha,
2: you, ha, you got me. I, I, th- I think I need to think more about that. I think it would actually help my process as a writer. I, somebody once said to me, writers are people for whom writing is harder than everyone else. Yeah, boy, I feel your pain. <laughs> and after spending seven or eight years writing a 186-page book, I <laughs> I really feel that. And um, I think I could probably learn a lot from applying some of the things that I'm so excited about when I think about applying design thinking in all these ways in the world to the systems and schools and so on that we exist within and probably haven't turned that mirror to myself in my own writing practice. So first of all, just thank you for planting that seed and the prompt to do that. And yes, I, I would gladly take you up and we could even try to model it as we write that blog post. Um, I don't know that I have anything could, uh, to say about it should, except
1: well, we could reach out to English teachers out there and ask that question as well, because I bet we'd get some interesting, uh, some interesting answers.
2: Yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, let's let's dig into that one.
1: All right. What um, are, are there a couple areas that you're uh, thinking about for your the path forward for the uh, the K twelve lab at the D school? Yeah,
2: and I think we've actually already touched on some of them in some ways. I mean, one of them is. Ever since that experience uh, shadowing the student, I like to think there's a role for design and human-centered design and participatory design in, in any major, solving any challenge. And when it comes to this violence and safety and trauma related to those things in schools, I, I, it's such a, in some ways, such an obvious policy issue to me that it's a, it, I get a little stuck on how we could be most helpful here. And yet, I feel like we have to try, and so I really want to dig into that. I'm, I'm hoping some students here at Stanford will, will work with me and start exploring that area and seeing Boy, seeing where uh, where within that area we might be able to apply some of the design yeah, process and tools well, and mindsets to.
1: Love that idea. I, I, I've already heard. Architects and uh, contractors talking about making kind of fortress schools, less windows mm-hmm. and less doors, and uh, just heartbreaking r- responses. Um, so, l- let's talk more about that. What, what other areas are you thinking about?
2: Well, and the, and the, and the other thing I'll say, because I have, I have a background working in, in juvenile prisons as well, you know, some of the things I've heard about, the doors that can be locked from the office, that sort of stuff schools are yeah. spending millions of dollars on now. It's yep. prison. I mean, that is what they have at yeah. the prison. I taught in a prison. That is how it works in the prison. And it and right. it, it's not okay. I mean, I understand and I, I don't mean yeah. to be insensitive. People are trying to protect children and I understand if I was a principal, I don't know, maybe I would be going down one of those roads. But I just it's it's heartbreaking and I have to believe there's a better way to, to keep everyone safe. And so that there's definitely work that needs to happen there. What role we can have? I'm, I'm still, you know, we're still exploring. What else? Uh, in the spirit of equity, I, I believe a lot of the design work, not just at the D school, more generally, I feel has been just talked about and applied at the classroom and school level, and I think we need to sort of level up. Um, or level out, or whatever direction we want to call it, level down to the districts, to the infrastructure. Um, and if we're serious about equity, I don't know that we can, in some ways, all we can do is one student, one classroom, one school at a time. And in some ways, we need to address the systemic challenges um, that exist at district level, at in some cases at a municipal level, at a state level, and at a federal level. And so I'm really keen to take on some Work and some collaboration with folks on the ground in in districts, in uh, cities, in states to apply some of what we've been applying mostly at the school level uh, to to those levels of work in education. Um, so, in other words, yep. ecosystem design projects. And and I've gotten to explore some of that area a bit um, previously. I think there's a lot of opportunity still there, and would love in the coming year or so to partner with even just one ready. Uh, district or, or city. And and we've been having some conversations um, about who that might be and address one issue or challenge and and, and work on that together. Um, I think that would be really imp- good work, important work, and would love to sort of tell that story and, and just offer it as a learning opportunity for, for ourselves and, and anyone else who, who might be able to benefit from that. So that's another um, Another that I'd love to get your take on is just thinking about the intersections of technology and education. Um, Being a a recent transplant to Silicon Valley has hammered home the point that we're on borrowed time from machines (laughs) at this point. (laughs) I know there's this whole kind of the robots are coming narrative in education. And a lot of times what that ends up pointing to is this panic that um, we need to prepare all 50 million students in this country immediately for this ever shrinking number of living wage jobs that are going to be available. Um, and there may be some truth to that, but I don't like it because there's a lot of students in that scenario who don't win. Um, so I'm interested in how do we prepare students to really reimagine these, these systems? I mean, I don't, I don't know what that looks like. Um, but exploring these big ideas about how societies work and how much do people need to work and what does everyone deserve? What you know, there's some interesting stuff going on in Stockton right now with universal basic income.
1: Yep. No, sharing is the new superpower. How people and communities and countries decide to share the extraordinary wealth and benefit that's being created is, it's going to be everything. Agreed. If if we care at all about equity, we need to take this on. We need to start the conversation. And school is, the, is a great place to lead this conversation uh, nationwide,
2: worldwide. Uh, agreed. And then, and then also, so I really am keen to dig into that conversation and would love your thoughts on how to do it, who to engage. Uh, but I think there's some interesting work for us to do just thinking really about yep. the purpose of schooling in that context. And then also, uh, there's just interesting and powerful advances in artificial intelligence and machine learning.
1: I, I just posted uh, 35 ways that AI is improving education. Well, we, we um, need to get right on reading that um but, but let's i think we both agree that you know it's gonna it, it, it's a new opportunity platform but I, I ended that article by saying human beings are motivated by relationship and they learn in community and that's not going to change for many generations to come so this is still very much a a human enterprise. And that's part of what I really appreciate about your work and the and the D school work that it's, it's very human centered design.
2: Yeah. We, so, so I, I appreciate that. I appreciate you appreciating that. And I think for us, then the question is in that context and you just put it beautifully, what is the role for these technologies? And, um, I, I was talking recently with, uh, do you know, Laverne, uh, Nivasan, yep. the Carnegie Corporation. Sure. So, Laverne was uh, pointing out. I mean, there's there's classroom implications of these technologies, but there's also systems implications um, right. that may not be about replacing rel- any sort of relationship between teacher and student or student and student, but maybe about uh, um, other really dramatic improvements you could make to the system yep. at a systems level. And I thought that was really interesting um, because yep. most of the conversation I've heard has been about imagine if students didn't have to be in the classroom to be in the classroom or, right. you know, that this AI could know exactly what they know and don't know. Right. Um, so if, you add, if you
1: add AI to the system and then you add sort of blockchain transcripts and throw in a dose of autonomous uh, transportation, which makes it cheap and ubiquitous and safe, you really can imagine city as classroom in a, in a very new and
2: exciting way. A- absolutely I lo- so going in more in that direction is is very interesting and exciting and um, I know you know my my colleague and co director of the k twelve lab here laura mcbain um she's been really digging into that area of of research and and we'll we'll be i know we'll continue to dig into it in some way still figuring out what shape that might take
1: sam fidel we uh, we appreciate the work you're doing at the d school thanks for sharing it so openly and freely with the world and for being on the Getting Smart podcast.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me and look forward to being in continued conversation, collaboration, and learning.
0: A big thanks to Sam for joining us on the podcast today. We appreciate the work being done by him and his team. And if you're excited about design thinking and its impact on education, we have a bunch of resources on our website around design thinking and all things related. I've got them linked in the show notes below and on the blog for this episode. And lastly, if you haven't already, make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Next week, we'll talk about design more with another exciting interview. We're excited to bring you more thought leaders on the show, as well as educators, school leaders, and others working to transform learning both in and out of school. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in for the Getting Smart Podcast. This is Jessica signing off.